in all seriousness, what is wrong with you? You all sat week after week at your listening sessions across the state, and the number one issue that you heard was childcare. It's the biggest issue, the cost, the lack thereof, and still you did nothing. Brooke Skidmore is founder and co-owner of The Growing Tree, a child care center in New Glarus, Wisconsin. She and her fellow carers look after 50 children. Last week, she confronted Wisconsin lawmakers demanding that they acknowledge the precipice she and other child care providers in the state are facing. At the end of this month, $24 billion of pandemic-era federal child care assistance will expire. Wisconsin lawmakers have chosen thus far to also end Child Care Counts, the state's subsidy program based on that federal funding. Skidmore burned with frustration at Wisconsin lawmakers, saying that they were ignoring ample evidence that federal and state funding helped children by helping child care centers alleviate an ongoing staffing crisis. And you were given the research that it did work at improving the wages for us. It went from 10.66 an hour to now we're at 13. And that's still pathetic. We pay people to care for our dogs more than our children in the state of Wisconsin. And it leaves childcare providers with little choice, Skidmore said. Corrine Hendrickson, also a childcare provider in New Glarus and also at the hearing last week, told the assembled politicians that if nothing is done to bridge the gap left by the expired funding, providers will have to drastically increase rates. We can't pay enough because we can't charge enough. Younger people are not accepting the fact that things are on their back anymore. We as a field for far too long have accepted that we're subsidizing the parents' inability to pay us what we're worth. We're done. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The end of pandemic-era funding means that more than three million children, almost one-third of kids currently in childcare, could soon be left without care, according to the progressive think tank The Century Foundation. Their study claims that 70,000 childcare programs could close across the country. The sector could lose more than 230,000 jobs. Other providers may be forced to reduce class sizes or raise tuition. Because, as Corrine Hendrickson tells us, care providers were already making very little pay, especially at family child care centers like hers. Before the funding came through, I was making $6 an hour. Um, now it's around 9 or 10 Meaning, before the pandemic relief money, Hendrickson was paying herself $1.25 less than federal minimum wage. She was able to do that because her husband's income as a firefighter was enough to support the family. Otherwise, to pay herself a fairer wage, she would have had to raise tuition for parents, something she did not want to do. The pandemic-era funding also allowed her to hire a second person to help with the seven or eight kids she cares for full-time. And more importantly, she says, she was able to do all that without charging parents more. I used that money then so that my parents could do quarantine rates. If they were their kid was sick with anything, they could stay home and I um, charged them much less or nothing. I ended up closing for two weeks because I got COVID over Christmas 
a year and a half ago. And I didn't charge them for that time. And the parent, you know, every time the child was exposed, they stayed home. So I was able to do that. I didn't raise my rates since 2018. Um, so that was helpful for them because even with inflation, even with all of the rising food costs and things, I was able to keep my rates lower. As mentioned, with the expiration of federal funding, Wisconsin has not yet opted to continue its state subsidy program, meaning Hendrickson will have to raise rates to cover rising costs. In June, I raised my rates 20 percent. And then now, just this last Monday, I raised my rates again, $15 a week. And then they'll be going up again another $30 in February when the rest of the funding dries up. So in a year, I will have raised my rates about $60 a week per kid. Or $240 per month per kid of an increase. Hendrickson says her current families are able to pay the tuition hikes, but next year, six of the children she cares for will move on to kindergarten. That means she'll have to fill those spots with other families willing and able to pay higher rates. I don't know, realistically, that I'll be able to replace all six of those kids at the rates that I'm going to charge, so I might be done, which is very sad. Kareen Hendrickson of New Glarus, Wisconsin. She's run Kareen's Little Explorers Family Child Care since 2007. Well, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers has called for a special legislative session to convene this month to address the state's child care funding shortage. But providers like Skidmore and Hendrickson say they're not optimistic. This same issue is happening in all 50 states of this country. So this hour, we want to explore how to save childcare, the people who provide it and the families who rely on it. We also want to look at the overall impact the funding drop will have on a sector that was already struggling even before the pandemic. So joining us now is Julie Cashin. She's a senior fellow and director for women's economic justice at the Century Foundation. It's that national progressive think tank I mentioned before. She joins us from Washington. Julie, welcome to On Point. Thanks, Magna. It's great to be here. Okay. So first of all, take us back to when the uh, pandemic, excuse me, the pandemic era funding uh, kicked in. What immediate difference did it make to child care providers and families across the country? We know that before the pandemic even began, child care providers were struggling, that this was an issue that families across the country were struggling with because child care prices were too high and also child care options were hard to find in every community. So we had this problem beforehand. The pandemic then kind of drove this Mack truck over the sector that was already struggling. When the pandemic era money came in, it made a huge difference for providers. As you already heard, you know, providers were able to pay higher wages to keep great people working at their uh, programs. They were able to pay their rent or mortgage or utilities. And keep in mind, this was a time when inflation was rising. So their prices were going up and they didn't necessarily want to have to pass that along to parents as well. Uh, They were able to pay for safety and health equipment, um, you know, protective equipment for dealing with the pandemic. Uh, As I think it was Corinne said, you know, they were able to be really flexible with their parents so that they weren't encouraging contagious behavior um, and and parents could feel like they could keep their kids home when they were sick without feeling like their bank accounts were going to be drained. Mm. Now, to be clear, when we say this pandemic era funding is sunsetting, that's because it was in the American Rescue Plan, right? That's right. And uh, and Congress has declined to um, to to renew the to renew lots of portions of the American Rescue Plan, including child care. So that's why there's this September 
uh, 30th cliff, essentially. So um, can you tell me a little bit more? I mean, the numbers are quite staggering. Uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services kind of describe it as that, that $24 billion, which were distributed to states. So we want to talk about that in a second. But it served, what, almost a quarter million providers and saved um, jo- the jobs of uh, at least a million early educators? That's right, and served almost 10 million children. Um, This money really made such a difference. And it also demonstrated what's possible when the federal government partners with families and states to support children the way that we should be supporting children. So it showed us that, you know, when the sector has the support they need, they can really support parents without, you know, keep the prices lower, not break the bank for families, and make sure that they're able to provide the safe nurturing care they want to for children. Mm. So look into your, your looking glass. I mean, this is the, the, essentially the, the report that you wrote, Julie. We mentioned some of the things broadly that could happen if nothing is done post-September 30th. But what do you think is going to happen in various places if these grants aren't renewed? Yeah, if we are not able to bridge this gap and and keep funding in the system, we are going to see a combination of childcare providers having to close, staffing shortages, meaning classrooms will also close. So a program may be staying open but not serve as many children, and prices will rise. You know, and we're already seeing prices at ten thousand a year, twenty thousand a year, depending on the place and the age of the kids. So these are already too high prices, and it's because we have a broken market. So the system, you know, wasn't working beforehand. This money was the infusion that was needed. And um, when that money goes away, you know, as we said, about 3.2 million children could lose out. And the impact doesn't just affect the children and their parents. But to be clear, their parents will be affected. They're going to have to figure this out. Some of them will leave their jobs altogether. We know that's mostly going to be the moms, right? Some of them will have to reduce their work hours. And we predict that that could impact about $9 billion annually of parental earnings that they could lose that money. It also affects states, right? So the state economies where they're relying on that income tax, where employers are relying on employees to not be disrupted by childcare disruptions. And so we also see that about $10.6 billion in economic activity around the nation could be lost as a result of this funding going away. Mm. So we're talking about potential job losses uh, amongst providers. We're going to come back to that uh, in a little bit later. But also then, as you said, to the... Uh, the parents of these children who won't have any other options. So I, I hear you trying to underscore that this is more than just about, you know, can parents pay for childcare, but that you're suggesting that the broader economic implications uh, will touch us all whether or not we have children in our families. That's exactly right. And one of the things, you know, the pandemic really pulled off the invisibility cloak of all of the care work that's been going on for years, undervalued and underappreciated. You know, we had kids popping up on Zoom calls as everyone was working from home. And you could actually like physically, tangibly see that parents have a really tough job to do to figure out how to care for their kids while also, you know, doing their jobs. And so I think that this is something 
something that, you know, people are more aware of than ever before, but the ripple effects may not be totally appreciated yet. Yeah. You know, for a couple of years, 2020, 2021, we did a lot of shows where the theme was the pandemic is a mirror, right? On our society, on American society. And if we don't like what we see, we need to do something about it. Well, it seems like we've dropped the mirror now. And, uh, aren't caring to look at the at the reality that was revealed to us anymore. But maybe all hope isn't lost yet. So we're going to talk more about this child care funding cliff that Americans are facing come September 30th when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we are looking right at the funding cliff faced by American child care. Because on September 30th, $24 billion in federal funding for child care in this country will come to an end with the sunsetting of pandemic-era assistance. So we're looking at why, what the implications are, and if we can do anything about it. Well, let's hear the perspective some from at least one parent. Michelle Maywes is in Los Angeles. She has two daughters. One is three. The other is 17 months. And here's how Michelle describes her family's childcare expenses this past year. Huge, huge. I mean, it was more than our rent, especially since we have two and one of them was still, you know, considered infant. It was about $4,000 a month. And then in July, she got an email saying rates were going up. My instant reaction was oh my God, we we can't do this. You know, we expected an increase, maybe a small increase, but I mean, we're talking twice as much as inflation, you know? I, I didn't even get a raise to compete with inflation. Like my raise this year was 2%. So we're not even hitting inflation. And then I've got this high of an increase to compete with. In September, rates went up 15% for infants and 10% for preschool-age kids, meaning now Michelle and her husband pay about $4,700 a month for childcare. We decided we couldn't we couldn't do it. Like we just we were already kind of pushing ourselves, you know, budget-wise, but we were like it's just one more year until the older our older daughter is eligible for TK, the transitional kindergarten. And uh, we were like, we can do it for one more year. But we were like, we can't do this. It's just too much. 
So they decided to take their youngest child to a separate daycare than her sister, saving them a total of about $400 a month. But they are still paying more than their rent. Oh, my gosh. Like, nothing extra. We don't we don't take vacations. I mean, that's <laughs> definitely not something. Um, I'd say mostly it's just staying where we are. I mean, luckily, I have a car that's paid off, so hopefully nothing happens to that. We just, we try to not buy anything extra. I, I feel like we still spend a lot on food and essentials and things, but we just try not to get anything outside of that. Michelle says the only solace she gets right now as a parent is that this immense burden of the cost of childcare is temporary. In a few years, both of her girls will be in school, and then the family can start saving again. But these past few years, Michelle says, have really been a struggle. We've created a society where it's like we need to earn our households. And I feel like the rest of the society hasn't caught up to that. So that's Michelle Maywes. She lives in Los Angeles. And at $4,000 a month, it means her family costs for child care are $48,000 plus a year. Now, Julie Cashin, we're going to I'm going to ask you in a minute about why it's so expensive. But let me go back to the decision that Congress made to not renew uh, this federal funding for the subsidies. Perhaps the logic is that, okay, it was justified to do this in the middle of a pandemic crisis, right? That to keep childcare centers open, they needed extra help. Many, many parents suddenly had basically, you know, drastically reduced, if not zero income because of job loss. So it was a necessary... A giant band-aid to hold things together. But now that we are no longer in an emergency, a state of emergency regarding the pandemic, well, we it's okay to go back to the situation we were in before, um, need, meaning the withdrawal of federal subsidies are okay. Yeah, Magnet, here's the thing. In November of 2021, Congress passed, the House of Representatives passed the Build Back Better Act, and that had a significant funding in there to lower child care costs for families and essentially build the comprehensive child care and early learning program that the United States has long needed. So the idea was, you know, with support from President Biden and Democrats in Congress, right, this bill was going to pass and ideally become law. And we were going to have this bridge of pandemic funding and get to the other side where we would have the comprehensive program that, you know, demonstrates that childcare is a public good, that we all benefit when we invest in our children and families. And the Senate did not pass it. And so all of that money, that $400 billion for childcare and early learning was left on the cutting room floor. So here we are, you know, we had other sectors, right? Airlines got a bailout and you know, restaurants got a bailout at the height of the pandemic. But those are sectors that have more leeway. They have profits to work with, right? Our sector, childcare that we're talking about, does not have that, right? It's what Janet Yellen, Secretary, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said, it's a broken market. The math does not add up. And so this funding, you know, got us through this really tough time, but the need for it doesn't go away just because the crisis is over. Mm. Now, I want to fully disclose my own personal experience here because I am a parent um, and I happen to live in 
quite an expensive state, uh, full disclosure, being in Massachusetts. Um, when my kids were uh, in childcare before kindergarten, we we sent them to a very high quality childcare center. Unfortunately, my kids were um, far enough apart in years that they were staggered, so they were not yeah. going at the same time. But uh, nevertheless, it meant for a period of several years we were paying close to twenty five thousand dollars a year. Uh, for childcare because of the one kid in each. Again, it was very high quality. So we were happy and fortunate to be able to do it. So full disclosure there, I know personally uh, the financial pain that that, uh, parents go through. But what I'd like you to uh, explore with me a little bit, Julie, is explain to those who aren't having to face this right now, why is childcare so expensive. What are the things that drive the costs of, again, I'm going to underscore, high-quality care? Yeah. It's exactly to your point, right, that families, regardless of their income level, want the best foundation for their children. That means we need to invest in the people who are providing that foundation. Those are the early educators who, as you heard, are currently making less than minimum wage in some places, right? And so if we want to invest in our children, we need to make sure we're paying higher wages to the early educators caring for them. We need to create a situation where children are safe, nurtured, and able to learn. And that means that, you know, every parent should have access to what you had access to, high quality care where, you know, they're able to to keep the best people working in this sector. Right now, with wages so low, we can't keep great people working in childcare. They're leaving to go pour coffee or sell, you know, appliances because they can make more money in other sectors, even if they've trained and they want to be doing this work with kids. But this is some so so I'm gonna ask you again to answer the question because this isn't something that kind of computes in people's minds. If we're already paying childcare providers so little money, oftentimes at minimum or below minimum wage, again, there's that question, why is it so expensive? Where is that money going? What's driving the cost? What's driving the fact that the cost of childcare in this country is rising higher than inflation and has been doing so for many years? Yeah, the fundamental issue is that this is a broken market, right? That we should be treating child care like clean water and safe food and good public schools and libraries, right? Where we have a partnership where the public sector has a role to play to invest in those underlying needs, right? To invest in the buildings or the homes, right? To invest in the people providing the education. It is a labor-intensive business. If we want to do this well, if we want to invest in our kids in those early years where they're brains are developing. We need a lot of teachers there. We need a lot of early educators there working with them. We need the resources to make sure that the places where they're being educated or where they're being cared for are, you know, safe and have great learning materials. And, um, you know, so basically, like, if you think of other sectors that are like this, that are providing that much benefit, there is a federal component, there's a public component to them. And childcare doesn't have that. So what we end up doing is we ask parents to pay when often when they can least afford it early in their careers. And the math just does not add up to invest in, you know, what's all the things that are needed to provide high quality childcare. Okay. 
I'm still a little hazy here, Julie, and you got to forgive me for pushing on this, but I think getting a detailed understanding of why it's so expensive, also it will compare the United States to other countries uh, in a little bit, is really important because people are co- people who aren't part of the system are constantly wondering, well, why should I subsidize it, right? Um, so the cost of people, right, is one of the things yes. you're pointing out, that um, the carers themselves, they are... They are uh, um, qualified uh, and accredited, oftentimes accredited human beings that that need to get paid, plus benefits, which are also uh, a cost for any employer. Uh, I'm presuming real estate is uh, is an issue here. Um, I'm also, as you said, supplies, curriculum, um, places to play. Uh, perhaps is there a cost of trying to uh, meet uh, meet the requirements of uh, local and state regulation around child care as well? Well, often that's exactly what we're already talking about, right? Those are the, you know, the staffing ratios where we're making sure that kids have enough adults around them to to keep them safe and, and well-nurtured, right? So the, you know, meeting the cost of the regulations is essential, is often the same as meeting the needs of high-quality care. Um, but it's exactly what you said, right? That, you know, we know that inflation went up on everything. And so childcare providers who provide food, you know, had to figure out how to pay for more more expensive food, their own rent or mortgage prices may, or I guess rent or utility prices went up, right? And so they had to cover that cost as well. Um, you know, those, all of those things add up and it it's a lot of money for providers who often are just doing this, you know, because they love kids and mm. they want to make it work. They also don't have a lot of support in the back end, right? It's This is running a business. And so, you know, if somebody is really great at being at working with kids and caring for kids, they're not necessarily also great at like running their books and doing their finances, um, you know, and so that's another expense that that's part of the part of the challenge that providers face. Okay, so we spoke with uh, Joanna. She's uh, an on-point listener in Georgia and a childcare worker. Now, um, she did not want to use her last name because she is not authorized to speak by her and employ- her employer, and she's concerned about the possibility of a little bit of blowback. But she's been in the industry for more than 10 years. Joanna has two college degrees and also a child development associate credential, yet she only makes $14 an hour. The most important years of a child's life is zero to five. And that is what we get paid is 14 an hour. And that's not enough to even live off of. So it's pretty sad. People assume that we sit around and hold babies all day. And yet we make lesson plans. We're interacting all day. And I mean, it's, it's countless. We're not sitting down ever. If we're sitting down we're holding a baby, we're giving it a bottle, we're singing songs, we're teaching them things. And so it's it's a very strenuous job. It's not easy by any means. And the people that want to sit around tend to not make it in my line of work. And I love it, though. I treat the children as if they're my own. And I, what scares me is if I, you know, I could go get a higher paying job, but if I'm not doing this job, I don't know who will, you know, who will come in there and take the low pay and do a good job. You know, you have to love the job to to accept it as it is. Well, Joanna readily identifies the problems, but she also told us she's got a few solutions of her own. Wouldn't it be nice if we could say, okay, well, daycare providers are the same as teachers, you know, because we are teaching these babies 
from zero to five. So why can't they make as much as a teacher makes? You know, I mean, I've got the education. I think somebody's making money. I mean, it's it's capitalism. I, yeah, it costs money to rent a building, but not that much. You know, not not that much. Somebody's making money, and it's not the workers. It's not the people that do the work. Joanna is in Georgia. Julie, put a, put the United States in context here. How does the U.S. compare to other uh, industrialized nations in terms of uh, subsidizing childcare, treating it as a market, availability, that kind of thing? The United States is so behind, especially as compared to other wealthy nations. Um, you know, our we spend such a, a tiny percentage of our GDP on childcare and early learning. Other nations have really invested in childcare. You know, put their their dollars where their values are. Right, they put their dollars into making sure that their children are well cared for. The reality is, you know, the majority of kids have all of their parents in the workforce whether that's a solo parent or, you know, a two-parent family. Um, and that's our experience here in the United States. And we are just not matching up to that, uh, especially as compared to other nations. Why do you think that is? Um, I think that there's been a conscious effort to have kind of that DIY mentality that, you know, we're all on our own. It's a quote unquote personal responsibility issue. We've been sold this bill of goods that, you know, this is on moms. This is on the black and immigrant women who are undervalued and underpaid for this work um, that, you know, that we should be able to figure it out all on our own. And, you know, that's kind of where that mom guilt comes from, right? That it's like, it's my fault that I can't do it. But in fact, our systems have not been built for there to be every parent working. And um, the assumption is still that, you know, moms will take care of it, that, you know, that women can can deal with this and with these low paid jobs. And that's just not acceptable. And it's not what's going to be best for our economic growth as a nation either. What evidence is there that children who do get high quality child care pr- prior to kindergarten, um, if, you know, if their parents uh, both have to work, uh, the impact it has on their lives long term. Yeah, children who experience high quality care, you know, are much are, are able to thrive, right? That they are able to build relationships with trusted adults, that they're able to, um, you know, we see better health outcomes over the long term. You know, and I think the thing to be really clear about is like, this isn't that these early educators are raising our ch- children instead of us, right? That we're still a part of their lives. Like once once your kid goes to kindergarten, you're not like saying like, oh, you guys, you know, you're in charge now, right? We're all in this together. This is something where parents are still, you know, this integral caregiver in their child's life. There's integral early educator in their child's life. And they're partnering with early educators to support their child's healthy growth and development. Um, you know, and especially those early years, right? Brain synapses, you know, are growing and growing and growing, as as um, Joanna and Georgia said, right, in those early years. And so this makes such a difference if we're able to give them all the nurturing and care and learning that we can in those early years. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about how there is actually one program in the United States that does subsidize child care effectively and what we can learn from that. This is On Point.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I want to give you a little heads up on something we're working on for later this week. We're going to be taking a look at why the rates of cancer in young people, particularly those younger than age 50, are rising. So we want to hear from you. Have you or someone close to you been diagnosed with what's being called early onset cancer? Was the diagnosis a surprise? How did it change life for you or your loved one. We want to hear your experiences, so you can share them by recording a message in the On Point Vox Pop app. If you don't already have the app, you can just search for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps. You can also leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. So that's for a show we're working on later about why we're seeing a rising rate of cancer in people under the age of 50. Today, we're talking about the funding cliff that child care providers are facing come September 30th when federal pandemic-era funding that helped subsidize child care comes to an end. And Julie Cashin joins us. She's a senior fellow and director for women's economic justice at the Century Foundation and co-author of a report titled... Child Care Cliff, 3.2 million children likely to lose spots with end of federal funds. And we have a link to that at onpointradio.org. Now, Julie, as I hinted before the break, there is one longstanding uh, system program in this country of federally subsidized child care that has been wildly successful. Okay, so before we talk about what that is, I want to give folks some more context about the comparison uh, regarding federal subsidies between the United States and other countries. For example, uh, on average, the U.S. uh, federal government spends about $500 per child annually on early child care. That's uh, through the programs that assist low-income families. Norway, though, spends almost 60 times more, that's the country of Norway, than the United States. So here, it's obviously the parents that uh, bear almost the entire cost of care. Now, for about 50 years, some lawmakers have been trying to change that, though they've obviously had little success. But here's the exception. It's the United States military. As of 1989, child care for members of the military has been government-supported. In fact, the Defense Department spends about a billion dollars every year on child care. Linda Smith is one of the architects of this military child care model. And at the time, again, in the late 80s, she oversaw child care and youth programs within the Defense Department. 
as the military moved from a conscription, basically, draft to an all-volunteer force, obviously, they needed to recruit and retain people. And the military, I think, got it very early on that they needed to do something about child care to keep young people in the military. So not only was the military suffering from that recruitment problem, but in the 1980s, it was also suffering from increased health and safety violations and allegations of sexual abuse at their daycare centers. So Congress was pressured to take action. However, improving care was not going to be cheap. We understood in the military from the beginning that the cost to produce quality child care just costs more than most parents can afford to pay. It's that simple. The other problem? Demand, of course, was much higher than the supply of child care. So Smith says to make it all work required federal funds, but only if some important stipulations were attached to it. In order to keep the cost down to parents, we had to put more money into the programs. In other words, to underwrite the costs of care. And so what we started doing was obviously putting money into the programs and in return for what we asked them to do, when we would give them funding, public funding, federal dollars, we would say, okay, you're going to do this in terms of the training of the workforce and the pay of the workforce. However, you're not going to raise fees to parents. So keep fees down and invest in the workforce and the quality at the same time. The Military Child Care Act passed in 1989 with widespread support. In its first year, the Defense Department invested about $89 million into the system, both on program fees and workforce training. Smith calls the military model a public-private partnership because the government and families both contribute. Parents pay... 50% of the cost, which is on a sliding scale based on their income, and the government picks up what's generally the other half. Today, on average, military families pay about $2,500 to $8,300 a year per child for childcare. So compare that to civilian families who pay, on average, again, national average, $9,400 to $17,000 a year. Again, that's on average. So the cost of care in some places is significantly higher. And military child care workers make about $45,000 per year, nearly double the average salary for civilian child care workers. It didn't happen with one huge dump of money. It happened gradually over time. And I think that, again, was one of the key pieces of it was you know, in not just dumping a lot of money into a system when it's not yet prepared to handle it. It took until 95, 96, until we had all the staff trained, we had all of the the, the pay scales in place, the people were now making, you know, higher wages. We had a graduated fee scale in, we had all programs in the military were nationally accredited, but it took time. And I think sometimes nationally, we're a little impatient. And, you know, these big dumps of money don't buy permanency. That was Linda Smith, former deputy director of the Office of Family Policy within the Defense Department, talking about the military child care program. So, Julie Cashin, first of all, um, I'm not sure if, if you 
if you know this number or even if we could estimate it. But we said a little earlier that the DOD spends about a billion dollars each year now on child care mm-hmm. for its program. Let's say we waved a magic wand, right, and scaled that up across the country to civilian families as well. Do we do we even know how much that might what that cost is that we're looking at? I don't know the exact number, but I do know that President Biden put in his budget for fiscal year 2024 $600 billion over 10 years to invest in child care and pre-K. Um, and so I think that's a good starting point to think about what, what it might take. So that's about $60 billion a year um, as, as you know, a, a model of what it could take to build a comprehensive child care and early learning system. Okay. Now, again, I just want to reiterate some of the things in the program for members of the military. It's not 100% subsidized, right? We talked about um, the sliding scale, essentially, uh, for families. The reason why I want to break that down into pieces is, are any of these smaller pieces then potentially viable uh, as 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 a national program? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just want to note one other thing, which is that the United States has actually had universal child care before, not only for the military, that that during World War II, when men were off fighting the war, there was an incentive to bring women into the factories to make the weapons. And the United States invested in the Lanham Act and actually created a child care program. Um, and so we actually have history of, of going even beyond the military to serve more families. Um, but when the war ended, they actually wanted women back at home so the men could take their jobs back. And Mm. so they canceled that program uh, in the 1940s. So, you know, we had that program as a precursor. Uh, We do have the military program, and and Linda Smith's work on that uh, is incredible. And, um, you know, and now we are trying to build from that. That's exactly what we're trying to do to create a program where there's a partnership between the federal government and families to provide the high-quality care that's needed and have... um, uh, parents not have to break the bank to pay for it. Mm-hmm. I should also note that in the 1970s, Congress passed uh, a program or an idea for an investment in, in child care, a big one, but that was vetoed by President Nixon, right? That's right. Yeah. So um, the Comprehensive Child and Development Act of 1971, it had bipartisan support. It passed Congress. Nixon actually had been talking about supporting it, and ultimately Pat Buchanan convinced him not to. And they started arguing that it was a family-weakening program and kind of creating communist scare around the idea of child care. And, you know, in some ways, we're still fighting against those arguments that we shouldn't have children together, uh, you know, served, served in these uh, in these types of settings. And uh, it's actually ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just want to um, take a slight tangent here and show that and, and talk about the fact that we have evidence you know, as of this week about the impact that um, the federal era um, financial supports for various parts of American society have had and then the immediate impact that the withdrawal of those supports uh, have because you know I'm thinking about the latest numbers in um, child poverty in this country, yes. right? Because in uh, in 2020, before the pandemic kicked in, child poverty was hovering at about 10% in this country. And then with the passage of the of funding that allowed uh, child tax credits to kick in for families. This country succeeded in almost instantaneously cutting the child poverty rate in half, right? That's it right. went down to 5% in 2021. Well, 
Uh, we just have numbers out this year, this week from the Census Bureau that says from 2021 to last year, the rate of poverty amongst children has doubled. It's more than doubled. So now it's 12 percent, which makes it higher than it was just before the pandemic. And that's directly attributable to the loss of the child tax credit uh, expansion that was in place for a couple of years. So that's direct evidence. Do you? That's exactly right. Yeah. Go ahead if you wanted to say something. No, I was just going to say, like, we actually we saw what could be and what should be right. The the pandemic era funding for the child tax credit for home and community based services through Medicaid and for child care. Right. Made a huge difference. We had we even had emergency paid family and medical even paid sick days during the the early days of the pandemic. Right. So we put these great policies in place. They made a difference. They cut poverty. They, you know, saved people from getting sick. They saved people from being economically devastated by having to stay home if they were sick or contagious, right? And so we saw that they worked. And it is a travesty that uh, they're not going to continue. And just on that note, with the child care opportunity right now, today, um, members of Congress are introducing legislation, uh, the Child Care Stabilization Act, to put $16 billion on an annual basis to emergency child care funding to continue that funding so that we don't have that same fate with child care, so that we don't go from having a program that totally works and props up the sector and keeps it going and let that go away so that families are facing more closed childcare doors and higher prices. Now, Julie, the news that you just mentioned, yeah, is the fact that uh, this uh, bill is being introduced today, as you said, $16 billion a year for five years in stabilization grants. But we also have a Congress that is in the midst of deciding to be gripped by impeachment talk of President Biden. So what... Do you have hopes, any hopes of the bill passing? I do. Um, I have hopes because of the leaders that are leading it, right? So you've got Senator Murray and Leader Schumer and Congresswoman DeLauro and Congresswoman Clark. So you have these leaders in Congress, these Democratic leaders in Congress who um, are going to be at the negotiating table about the dollars, right, to see what happens. You know, we had the Biden administration send a letter that said child care is an urgent priority that Congress needs to address, right? So we have support from a lot of different folks. And we know that right now Republicans are just trying to distract from doing their job of funding the government and um, funding childcare the way it's needed. But it's also something that has bipartisan support. It's something that, you know, when you ask voters, there's widespread support for childcare. So I remain hopeful that something can be done now and that the continued work we're doing to build the full system that's needed beyond the emergency funding, that that's possible for the future as well. Yeah. And in fact, there's also, you know, the truth is, is that the cost of childcare and the lack thereof is a bipartisan reality for that's for right. Americans, regardless of what their political inclinations are. But I I do want to note that um, Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina has been talking quite a bit about child care. She's also co-founder of the Congressional Bipartisan Affordable Child Care Caucus. We invited her today. She was unable to join us. But here's a little bit of what she has been saying. This is her on CBS's Face the Nation uh, late last month talking about what she would do to fix the child care system in America. 
we talk about four-year-old pre-K, we talk about making sure that parents have the freedom and the resources to have childcare options, affordable childcare options. I approach it from a less government regulation standpoint. We have some really crazy regulations in this country. Some places say you have to have a four-year college degree. Well, that certainly makes it harder to find childcare workers, yep. increase the increases in costs because of it. Other places say, well, if you're certified in one state, it's not reciprocal in another. And it's just, you know, having some of those uh, approaches that can be easy to fix, fast to fix, not controversial, that can pass out of a Republican-controlled House, Democrat-controlled Senate, and get to a Democrat president's desk to be signed into law, that's what we've got to be working on. So, Julie, this is my last question to you. Um, we've been talking a lot about money, 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 and certainly cost is a major issue here. But um, are advocates, are even Democratic members of Congress also recognizing that there's a whole suite of solutions that have to be uh, addressed for child care in this country, including what Representative uh, May said there about maybe there's some room for uh, agreement over uh, regulation of child care? The bottom line is the American Rescue Plan funds showed us exactly what's needed, right? Investing in the system. You know, we can't do this well without money. Right now, somebody is bearing the costs. It's the parents who are bearing the costs. It's the underpaid early educators and providers. It's the children who aren't getting the care that they need. You know, we are we are experiencing the costs of not having federal investments, not having public investments in this. And it's time that we spend the money that's needed. Policy without the resources to do that is just not enough. We need federal investment. Mm, point taken. But I think uh, Congresswoman Mace there is also getting at the fact that, you know, maybe maybe we can alleviate the crisis a little bit if people don't have to have a four-year college degree in some states and probably some giant student loans that go with it. So therefore, um, need to get jobs that pay a lot, lot, lot more. But whole different, there's like a basket of solutions here. We need to address them all uh, in this country. So Julie Cashin at the Century Foundation, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was great to be with you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.